0: Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Professor Herman. Uh, Rick, it's great to see you again, and Sean Kay and other folks. It's also great to be back at the Mershon Center. I, I have to say that uh, it's it's a center that has always held uh, high regard. Uh, I think around the rest of the community, and as a, as a one of the key centers uh, that brings that is a primarily a civilian institution. As uh, Professor Herman and I were talking a little bit earlier, there's, there are a lot of institutions that are uh, linked to the military or or uh, sponsored by the Department of Defense, but uh, Mershon has always been a leading center of, that's primarily civilian, but uh, as part of this effort of building the dialogue uh, between the civilian and military communities in understanding national and international security issues. And I also have to say that one of my greatest privileges in government was serving with someone who's very near and dear to all of you here at Mershon, and that, and that is uh, Joe Krusel. I first met Joe uh, in, uh, when I was just a, an emerging grad student uh, and, and a resident fellow. He was coming back from having helped negotiate the Strategic Arms Control Agreements. Uh, in uh, Geneva, and uh, was finishing off his own PhD at the Kennedy School at Harvard. And uh, we became good friends, and then over the years many of our interests came together and converged. I came out here when uh, Joe, in the, in the 80s and early 90s, was working on uh, the development of ideas about our relations with the Baltics and, uh, and the countries of, of Northeastern Europe. And, and then we had the good fortune to come together again uh, in the mid-90s uh, working on uh, some of the things that Professor Herman alluded to. and in helping to uh, transform our relationships with the, the former countries of not only Central and Eastern Europe, the former Warsaw Pact countries, but also some of the parts of the former Soviet Union. And, and Joe Krusel, to his great credit, was one of the people that was in the vanguard of that, that movement and uh, that effort, which I think is paying enormous dividends for us today. And I, So I just want to take a moment to to remember Joe. I've, been, uh, I've visited, I've had the opportunity to visit uh, a number of uh, memorials to it. It was great to see the plaque out front here today. I've, I've been, uh, believe it or not, in Macedonia, a day down in the south of the Balkans, where they have the Cruisel Center, which is devoted to uh, training uh, some of their military and, and civilian military. Uh, so if you ever get to that part of the world, uh, if you're ever hanging around the South Balkans, uh, do drop by the, uh, the cruisal Center in Skopje. Macedonia, but uh, in any event, it's uh, it's uh, it's a pleasure and it's uh, both sad and, and happy occasion to to remember him uh, on a day like today. But um, but I do want to, and I what I want to do is uh, talk about uh, uh, what uh, what Professor Herman mentioned. Of we've been doing a lot of thinking, and it does grow out of the. If I walk away from the mic, will that be okay? Yeah. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. I if uh, I see this another there's a wireless in the is there okay, but it won't cause interference with or. Okay, uh, that might be a little easier <laughs> What uh, I was trying to say was that just we, uh, how's that, okay, uh, that we have been doing a lot of work uh, at the National Defense University over the last several years uh, trying to understand the impact of globalization on national security. What does it all mean? Uh, many of you know, of course, uh, Tom Friedman's early vision of Alexis and the Olive Tree and a number of other early theorists of globalization. That was all positive the world was going to come together in this great rush of prosperity fueled by global commerce and movement of people, information, goods, services, everything. And, of course, it all became clear and particularly most poignant after 9-11, which is about when we finished our study, in fact, the summer of 2001, right before 9-11, showing that, indeed, there was a dark side of globalization, that there were many new security challenges that were being uh, created by globalization and it was fueling and, and adding a certain amount of uh, dynamism to some of the traditional ones of, of regional and uh, ethnic and local conflicts. So we've been trying to think through a bit more what does that all mean for a variety of our relationships with, uh, with uh, both friends, uh, partners, allies, and, uh, and countries that uh, we're, we're not quite sure where we are in this sort of twilight of, of our relationship with countries. Uh, obviously, the the biggest question in that regard, China, but but uh, but uh, but many countries, and, and still, of course, this uh, term that you may have heard used in the Quadrennial Defense Review of states at the strategic crossroads, uh, which everyone thought was going to be just about China, but it also, of course, now increasingly, as we watch, sadly, the decline of of pluralism in Russia, uh, also Russia. So. We've been trying to think through what does this all, what does this now mean for the management of our relations uh, with, uh, with this, this uh, broader group of countries as we begin to maintain and advance uh, U.S. interests in this uh, global security environment. And one of the things we focused on is, is, uh, is sort of among the dimensions and as well as, uh, you know, some of the things we have to do, obviously, in, in the focus and so much of a focus in, in U.S. policy these days on the global war on terrorism or is it a war, is, it, is that really the right term? Uh, other aspects of this uh, of this uh, effort of, of dealing with homeland security, uh, certain aspects of dealing with state failure. But, but in all of these problems, uh, uh, countering proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, but in all of these problems, one of the key uh, challenges that we see is how do we best work with some of these countries that we think basically have some, some of the common interests, they, they may not see the problem exactly the same way we do. They may not have, certainly and they certainly don't, most of them have the kinds of capabilities, either military or non-military, that, that we do as a country. Uh, but yet we see time and time again that many of these, many of these challenges we cannot cope with uh, uh, by ourselves uh, because of the, the transnational nature of them, because of the, the question of legitimacy of some of our own action. And so, I want to talk a little bit uh, about that and how we've been thinking about it. And the, the, the key, the main questions I want to ask, uh, first of all, and, and indeed, you know, the fact that this administration came into power uh, really asking, uh, in some ways, a question do, do we really need alliances? Do we need this uh, in this era of unparalleled American power? Uh, they asked, legi- and, and I think a legitimate question, uh, but did we need allies? Were allies too constraining? Could we move towards something that was more flexible, coalitions of the willing? Uh, a flexible range of partnerships. Uh, were allies really only constraining and, and maybe even um, uh, uh, circums- uh, uh, circumscribing the use of American power in, in, in defense of legi- our legitimate national interests and in defense of certain values that we hold dear? Um, and secondly, could, they, uh, could the alliances be sustained? What was the basis of uh, what was the basis of sustaining these in the absence of some kind of clear and present danger that? That our traditional allies had felt uh, you know of course most, most enormously uh, from the old threat of the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact. so I want to sort of address those two questions and talk about a little bit about why why at least we've come out i 've come out particularly uh, speaking for myself and, and uh, uh, but a number of our other colleagues who've been working on some of this, uh, this uh, project with us. But also, I uh, give you a sense of what I think of some, and it's very difficult to do quickly. But uh, but I will touch on just generally the state of some of our key alliances, particularly uh, the NATO allies in, in Europe and some of our other partners in the Partnership for Peace, and our key treaty allies uh, in East Asia. Talk a little bit about the hemisphere as well. Uh, even though this, the OAS, the Rio Treaty, of course, is seen as mostly defunct, but we do have important security partnerships that are in, that are critical to the base of our long-term security uh, in Latin America and South America. And then talk a little bit about a strategy, uh, a strategy that would help us guide as we move towards an era of thinking about security uh, globally. As we look in the military at managing forces on a global basis, how do we think in a more integrated fashion about our alliances? And and I use that term integrated. Some of you in the military will will, uh, hear it the way I do. Uh, And, you know, it's sort of typical of some of these military buzzwords now. When when we talk about integrated operations, we mean civil, military, using all of the instruments of national power uh, and drawing together more in a more effective way the totality of what... And increasingly, we're not only talking about states, we're also talking about non-governmental organizations, the private sector, business, the role of individual citizens in, you know, particularly critical, of course, in aspects of homeland security and, and homeland defense. So that whole question of how do we integrate that, but how do we now integrate that? Not only we look at all the problems we've seen, of course, uh, you know, post-Katrina and all of the analyses of, of the problems we have doing that in our own country. How do we do that as we deal with state failure around the world and, and trying to build this kind of global coalition of alliances, if you will? And that's, that's the other sort of thing that we've been musing about, and I just want to throw it and I'll be interested to hear your reactions. So, anyway, let me run through the post-89 critique, if you will, the, mostly the realist critique. But it was the realists and the neocons, sort of together, that were saying, "Well, don't need allies, uh, and we really can't sustain it." The the main argument, of course, was that they couldn't sustain the uh, the the absence of a, of a specific and and overarching threat. Uh, that uh, that in the absence of a threat, states states bond together, and you know they don't naturally want to work together. There's a natural competitive relation, of course. And I won't, uh, a number of you are, are much more steeped in theory, at least more current in theory than I am from my from my days studying for my PhD. So I'm a long way from some of the current edge thinking in theory. But but you know the realist critique, and we've all seen it. Um, and yet here we are seventeen years after, after the end of the, of the Warsaw Pact, the beginning of the end of the Warsaw Pact, the crumbling the final crumbling of the Soviet Union three years later, and yet u s alliances NATO and u s alliances in uh, persist in, in uh, several years after this collapse and, and indeed, not only that we have, uh, we have uh, our, both our NATO and Asian allies working with us in Afghanistan, many of them well not formally as part of an alliance but as part of a coalition arrangement are working with us in Iraq albeit in, in rather modest, uh, modest levels. But the Afghanistan operation, I would argue, is quite significant and, and becoming even more important uh, as we continue to remain uh, bogged down in, in Iraq. Now the other theory that the neocons, of course, particularly pushed out was that uh, this is a unique moment in the world that we have unparalleled power and we can truly reshape the world in our own image uh, if we use the power and don't let ourselves get constrained too much uh, by the need to, to keep our allies and partners together on on, on, this, on the same page with us uh, and besides you know they argued well the allies they don't invest much in defense they don't bring much to the fight as we would say in the military and defense community uh, uh, what do we really what what really benefit do they do other than constraining the dollarization Gulliver, of American power that's all the allies are really about can't we do better by ourselves and of course there was secretary Roosevelt's famous mantra. Uh, that that he said in early 2001, the last thing we want to do is have the coalition decide the mission. The mission should decide the the coalition. In other words, we can put together the team we need on any given day uh, to do what we have to do. Uh, We can have this kind of flexible shifting arrangement. Uh, We don't need to be bogged down by traditional alliance consultations or, as Secretary Rice once said, to go somewhere to some international body to get permission slip to use our, our power. So anyway, we we know some of the legacy of of that as we see as we grapple uh, increasingly by ourselves and, and with a very rarely fraying coalition in Afghanistan and with some and, and uh, I mean a fraying coalition in Iraq, of the downsides of that. But let me let me address the, the the those critiques first of all. And and I and I alluded to these a little bit earlier. First of all, despite this predominant power, despite the nature of our Stature and status in the world. Uh, none of these threats, be they terrorism, proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, regional conflict, dealing with failed states, none of these, I would argue, are amenable uh, to purely national solutions. Or do we? Do we want? Do we, as a people, and speaking as an American, uh, do we, as an American people, want to take on this role of world policeman? It's one that is not uh, is not only not only not very appealing, but potentially very draining and the kind of legacy that we could, when you look at the kind of money we're spending every day in Iraq, uh, do we really want to be out there on our own trying to achieve these enormous societal transformations, uh, the, the kinds of commitments that we've made? And, and one, uh, one of your colleagues was alluding to me, and, and what about even Afghanistan? Again an enormous commitment that we've made. Can we really make good on all of our rhetoric? Uh, and I think that's a legitimate question. The other thing is I think the realist critique neglected the impact of globalization. And um, the fact is that, that it's true that uh, there's no overarching threat, but many of our key allies and partners, their traditional allies and partners in Europe, in East Asia, uh, and in a number of other regions of the world, and, and even uh, particularly in the Southern Cone in Latin America, and, and even many of the other Latin American countries, they do, uh, who are having more trouble coping with globalization, they do have a veteran, most of those countries, this sort of what we call the democratic core, which, which uh, Tom Barnett has called the, uh, uh, I, I think, the, um, the center and the, and the periphery, or I, I forget exactly uh, his term, but... Uh, but this notion that um, there is this core group that, that has a vested interest in maintaining an open global trading system in the movement of goods and people and services across national borders, uh, effective uh, norms and, and rules that allow that to continue to take place, and that do have a vested interest in trying to work with us uh, in maintaining that system and against a much more diverse and, and, and global array of threats and challenges uh, of, you know, of course, all of those things that I mentioned earlier. and. And moreover, by enlisting allied support in this, we gain a much greater degree of legitimacy for whatever we undertake. And of course, we only have to look back at the kinds of discussions we got into over over Iraq, and our intervention there on this whole question. Uh, and lastly, I think the other sort of, uh, from a, an international relations power uh, and, and uh, international relations theory and a power politics sort of perspective is the other thing that enlisting alliances and uh, allies and partners, it it eliminates the the inclination of other parties, of other governments and other partners to to balance or counterbalance us. And we saw this kind of urge even uh, in the midst of the the debate uh, over Iraq, of France flirting with the Russians a bit on the idea that maybe the Germans too, that somehow we had to create, and even some people would argue some aspects of European integration in the last decade has been fueled by this notion of we have to somehow, and that's certainly some of the French vision of, of the European Union, I think, or at least the French political class, this, the European Union can be a balancing and a buffering uh, power on American power. And, and we certainly don't want to see that happen, I think, because I, I would argue that we have, still have, despite our differences, many, many common, uh, many, many common interests and many uh, complementary capabilities that we can apply in dealing with some of these global problems. And so and I want to come back to that. Now, there's a, one last thing that I want to, just to give you a little bit of insight into kind of thinking, and, and particularly those of you who are in the service and, and elsewhere and, and have certainly heard some of this. There's another thing that is emerging, uh, particularly from uh, thinking of the last two quadrennial defense reviews, 2001 now into 2005, 2006. Uh, the whole question of, given the global nature of the threats, what we found, of course, in Iraq and Afghanistan was, suddenly we, we realized that we had this whole legacy of, of bases that uh, came from the Cold War. We were set up, we were arrayed, our military forces overseas were arrayed to defend against uh, threats emanating from the central Eurasian landmass, basically from the former Soviet Union. And yet suddenly we found out that the, uh, that the threats were all very quite distant, by and large. Yes, we still had the risk of, of the canonical, so-called canonical, you know, major theater conflict in, in Southwest Asia, somewhere in the Persian Gulf or wherever, and on the Korean Peninsula, and yes, we were well deployed for those two contingencies. But by and large, the notion that we would suddenly have to surge to Afghanistan to Central Asia—nobody was thinking about that before 2001. And how do you develop the kind of flexibility, and and then in addition the kind of uh, the kind of surge capability to to put discrete packages of force in very remote places very quickly, and to then sustain them? Those were some of the challenges that this last QDR has been looking for, and this was initiated. In what was called the Global Posture Review in the 2001 Quadrennial Defense Review, and I'm trying to avoid any acronyms uh, here. Um, In any event, uh, but so what? uh, So, having looked at this, what what now we've looked, what's now emerged from the 2000, uh, well, really not so much from the 2006 QDR, but over the last several uh, years of the review, is the notion that we need. To maintain some of those large main operating bases, as the military calls them, overseas, but many of them can be substantially downsized. And what we're moving towards is a much more flexible kind of footprint, of so-called cooperative security locations or very austere kinds of uh, bases and, and and limited facilities. Uh, for those of you in the Air Force, sorry, no golf courses, but uh, that's that's an Air Force Army joke. It'll, those of you, anyway. The, you know the joke in the, the joke in the army is the air force builds the golf courses first and then the bases. But anyway, that's enough inter-service rivalry. But uh, but uh, no. But I'm seriously. Uh, the, what the notion is is that uh, you can, for example, and, and this is actually playing out right now, in, in, in Romania and Bulgaria, we are going into some old uh, concerns that that those two countries had and setting up a fairly limited kind of presence that we can uh, rotate forces in and out of on a periodic basis. And those forces would be available. For example, in fact, uh, the elements of the 4th Infantry Division, when they couldn't go to Turkey in the beginning of the Gulf War, they went to, they went to Romania to this base that's uh, right on the Black Sea there. So we're, we're looking at this notion of taking over. We're not building a huge infrastructure there. We're not building a BX. and lots of other, a uh, uh, huge uh, kind of footprint, and the kind of thing that sometimes over time, although in some cases some of these East Europeans would like a bigger footprint and they want those American dollars rolling in, but as small as they are these days, but still they go a long way in Romania and Bulgaria. Um, the, um, the notion that, uh, that we need this kind of flexible footprint and be able to surge periodically, and, but not have a big footprint and not have that kind of irritation that oftentimes accrues when we have very large facilities and the kind of thing that we see very pronounced in our relations with Japan, where we have such a huge presence on the island of Okinawa and it's become and remains, of course, a very contentious issue. So in any event, let me, let me just touch then the la- the, quickly on the last couple of things, because I really want this to be a, a dialogue with you and, and hear your thinking on some of these issues, is to give you a, a quick thumbnail of the state of, of some of our alliances and where, where we are. Uh, and it's, of course, it's a, big, it's a lot of complicated sets of issues, and, and we can get into some of the, the details in the, in the Q&A. On NATO, I would say, you know, some people were saying NATO would be out of business uh, 10 years ago. Some people are saying NATO was more or less put out of business by the Bush administration when it went charging off into Afghanistan and, and didn't even bother to really uh, consult the Allies very much and uh, decided because, you know, for all those reasons we were just talking about, what do they bring to the fight? They, they can't even get themselves. So how they, you know, they don't have any lift. They can't get to Central Asia. We're going to have to do this ourselves. But yet um, we see the fact that that, uh, the alliance has integrated 10 new members uh, in the last several years, that that it uh, has achieved a lot in terms of the Balkan stabilization, uh, things that we sometimes forget, uh, uh, providing uh, cover in the U.S. even after 9-11 airspace, Uh, some modest relief even on on Hurricane Katrina. Uh, They're taking on a huge... uh, part of the burden in stabilizing Afghanistan right now and expanding into the southern region in in a very difficult time. And even just recently uh, surging off uh, Spanish and and Italian engineers working with the U.S. and and the U.S. helping getting them there to do some relief in Pakistan as a way not only to respond to a humanitarian crisis but to also show that that the alliance, that the U.S. and its partners are not uh, organized in any way against uh, Islamic countries or against the Islamic world um, we've also built the Partnership for Peace, which, of course, has been a huge uh, paid huge dividends in terms of uh, advancing our interests uh, around uh, the periphery of old Europe. We have seen; uh, some of you will remember uh, there was a f- uh, one of the early exercises in the Partnership for Peace was to do uh, some joint um, uh, paratroop kind of uh, exercises in the middle of Central Asia, in Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, and of course. At that time, people used to even joke, yeah, somewhere in the stands. They didn't even know where they were. Well, where are we today? We have bases in Central Asia. Uh, uh, and of course, we've, we've lost them too. But, but there we are, operating in the region. Why? Because it's key to supporting the whole stabilization effort in Afghanistan. It's, of course, not unhelpful in keeping an eye on what the Chinese and the Russians are doing in the region. Uh, lots of other benefits. So we've, we've actually continued to advance our global interest through maintaining uh, some of these partnerships. Um, and then also terrorism, instability. And again, to think more broadly about our alliance relations, we're working hard not only with these NATO – because of that basis of cooperation and, and constant consultation that goes on within NATO, it eases the rest of our overall cooperation with Europe writ large, countries that aren't in NATO, some of the key non-allied or traditionally neutral countries in, in the Nordic region and other parts of Europe – Uh, but other countries that that want to work with us on fighting terrorism, on promoting uh, uh, political change and and, and economic development in the Middle East and all of these other issues. Uh, By having the alliance relationship, it reinforces that mutual sort of global cooperation. And also as we work to build a a, a much more effective relationship where appropriate uh, with the European Union, where the European Union has certain competencies, particularly in things like Uh, Dealing with uh, societal development, building civil society in in post-conflict states, so working through a range of and developing a more effective NATO-EU relationship. And I've left – I could go on some more about that. I've left a a little article that I wrote about this, about – and I called it, you know, sustaining U.S. and European global security cooperation. So to think not only about the alliance but about the totality of our relations with Europe and in the aftermath of all the bad uh, uh, sort of vibes in the relationship uh, about – Iraq uh, in the last several years the administration has moved uh, in the last uh, in the last year to put that relationship back on a much uh, firmer course and a much more of a you know partly you know frankly out of a bit of uh, realizing that we truly do need allies in a be- in a big way to help us deal not only with afghan and b- share these burdens not only in afghanistan but but hopefully at some point once we can get iraq into a more stable situation to to continue to help us there although whether that will happen anytime soon, I'm, I'm not sure, and, and I doubt. Um, just turning quickly, to, so the, the, the challenge I think is sort of, I'll give you kind of a quick bottom line on each of these. Then the key challenge I think is to ca- encourage a fragmented and often reluctant Europe uh, to become a fuller and more capable partner with us in managing not only security affairs along its periphery, which it's much more inclined to do, it has a very active relationship with the Mediterranean dialogue states. Obviously, it's dealing with its own immigration problems. Uh, along, the, along the Mediterranean, and it's uh, boat people coming from Africa and elsewhere, North Africa. Uh, but also uh, to, to, do, uh, to do more to help us in managing a global stability, to, to develop the mechanisms and the kinds of consultative processes and the sense that we're open to a, a totality of a relationship with Europe, that it's not just that we want to do everything through NATO or we want everything to be done through support to the U.S., Uh, approach to some of these specific problems around the world. So as we begin to develop an approach uh, on on global uh, managing our common global security interests in ways that, that aren't always identical, that have a certain complementarity to them, it may be that in some areas we will focus more on one thing or the other, maybe law enforcement training, maybe some aspects of the military stabilization, and the Europeans will focus more on building the justice system or building the intelligence and police. Uh, Police is a capability where a lot of the Europeans have much greater capability because they have a tradition of national police forces, uh, which is a critical element in post-conflict stabilization of having the flexibility of a police force that can then operate uh, more on a national basis, which, of course, is not our own tradition. All right, in East Asia, just quickly, uh, it's a much more mixed picture. Uh, our alliance relations with Japan and Australia probably couldn't be better uh, for different reasons. Uh, in Japan, it's because Japan is seeing itself in a sea of turmoil all around it. It's worried about China, it's worried about North Korea, uh, it's worried about loss of energy supplies in the Persian Gulf. Uh, it's very much thinking that there's nowhere else to go but a close partnership with the U.S. and To its credit, the administration has managed, particularly the uh, former Secretary of State Richard Armitage, managed that relationship masterfully. It was kind of lost in the noise. Some of you may not have seen it, but we have an interesting publication that we've put out by my colleague Jim Pristip on this. The U.S.-Japan alliance uh, has been managed very, very well. And indeed, we've even just uh, achieved uh, a breakthrough on on, uh, some of the very most contentious uh, basing issues that we've had with the Japanese. But the Japanese are, are truly uh, in a hard place, and so it's a good news, bad news story. At one level, they are they couldn't be closer to us, and 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 they're willing to make some huge sacrifices. And the key question is how long that can be sustained uh, post Koizumi, and whether the consensus is really there among the Japanese people in the long term. Uh, the U.S.-Australia alliance, again, much the same, uh, much the same basis, although. A little bit more cautious on the China angle. Australia does not want... uh, They're a much smaller country, of course. Many many people think of the Australians as sort of the the Brits of the South Pacific, uh, our partners that will be always with us. It's oftentimes referred to as a special relationship, and indeed it is. It's uniquely close. We share a lot of intelligence information with them. We have co-located intelligence sites. There's lots of of cooperation with the Australians. And they're doing important parts of, of helping us uh, and stabilizing parts of the South Pacific in the Solomon Islands in Indonesia, uh, they were instrumental in our whole tsunami uh, relief efforts in, in the South in the South Pacific and in, uh, in Southeast Asia after the tsunami. So that that relationship remains very close, and the Australians have a very small but quite capable and well-trained uh, force, particularly a very effective special uh, special forces, uh, who have worked very closely with us uh, in in the Operation Enduring Freedom. That is the military kind of counterinsurgency, counterterrorism of terrorism parts of of the Afghan operation as well as in parts of the stabilization mission. But the big trouble spot in in Asia is the Republic of Korea. And, uh, and there we see a problem of a very conflicted Korean populace. Uh, for the most part the Korean population, uh, the Korean citizenry don't think that North Korea is a threat. The only threat is un- unraveling of the North Korean state and the kind of instability that would ensue And we've been searching for a common vision. The Republic of Korea, in general, the population, wants a positive relationship with China, obviously, but there's still a certain wariness. But they don't want to be drawn into an alliance or or in a structure of alliances uh, that that is seen as anti-China, that that we're building with the growth of our military posture and the readjustment of our military posture in East Asia, that we're building kind of an anti-China coalition. So more so than anyone the South Koreans, uh, particularly President No, uh, no Min-ri, has, has talked about the notion of Korea playing somewhat more of a balancing role. But yet there's still this sense of commitment and a sense that uh, they need us because uh, there is still this concern about the recognition that North Korea could go South very fast and not necessarily that they think that the North would ever use their nuclear weapons against the South, but that the unraveling of the state could cause all sorts of economic and political chaos on the peninsula and also the course of the concern about what we might do in that context, either militarily uh, or uh, in terms of uh, the way we might undertake the stabilization uh, efforts are on our own. So, so we're searching for a way to try to find a common vision, and we have a number of, and I do think in that area, too, it's been a little bit slower, a little more painful, but we have had an effective, a fairly effective process going uh, through a number of different consultative missions we can talk about a little bit more later. But I I think the key challenge, my bottom line on our East Asia relationships will be that we need to build consensus about how best to deal with China. We still don't have a firm consensus about how to deal with China. And even, of course, our own policy, those of you who followed it, is somewhat conflicted between economic engagement and security or military containment. And, in fact, uh, one wag, and we were working on the book that Professor Herman alluded to, said our our real policy on China is engagement. Uh, a little bit of containment, a little bit of engagement, but uh, we haven't. But, and it shows. But of course, uh, in any event, that's I think a key challenge with the with the allies in the Western Hemisphere. I'll just say quickly, because um, I want to. I want. I don't want. I want to make sure we leave time for for, for some discussion. Um, there's a lot of a lot of effort underway. Uh, our relations with Mexico, of course, uh, are always been strained, very difficult. Uh, we've been trying to develop a more effective security cooperation, particularly uh, and, and, and on the border protection, but in, and more f- beginning from the, the notion of, as the 9-11, pointed, 9/11 Commission pointed out, our poorest southern border being one of the weakest parts of our, our homeland defense uh, effort. And, of course, this has then become uh, infused or, or conflated with the much larger and much more uh, uh, much more complicated and, and, and contentious debate over immigration. but But... Surely, we all know, and, and the nine eleven commission pointed out that in, in, in amongst all of the uh, all of the, uh, the the workers that are coming seeking uh, le- you know, seeking employment and seeking a better life, there is a great concern that there's a lot of other flow of, of people that may be out to harm us, and how can we work more effectively with a, a country that has justifiably been very wary of of getting too close to our military and and, and concerned about how we might uh, might treat them in the in the Andean Ridge, we're working, of course, very close with Colombia and trying to help them deal with the problems of insurgency and narco-terrorism. Uh, we have a very, very close relationship there, but, of course, a number of other states that are, are feeling the, the rush of populism, of anti-Americanism, the concern that pervades all the region, even some of our closest partners in the region, like Chile, who are still very concerned about how firmly commitment, committed we are uh, to international norms, uh, the way we have trampled on some of them in in certain activities, uh, be it the war in Iraq, Abu Ghraib, whatever you name it, it's all caused us a lot of damage in the region. And how do we build back that sense that we truly do mean the words uh, articulated in the national security strategy, that we want to promote these values and and democracy and widening of of international cooperation and an open system at a time when many of these countries are are very unsure about the, the gap between our, our words and our deeds. But we're looking at trying to help develop a new concept of security that is much more comprehensive, uh, looking at the nature of a lot of these other transnational threats of, of organized crime, of gangs. Gang violence is huge, of course, in Central America and the way it spills over into our own country, uh, we're dealing with uh, in the environment and other, other broader questions of security. And so we've been trying to work with this new OAS charter uh, on security in the Americas. It was articulated in 2003 to develop a, a more holistic and comprehensive approach to security in the region and to show how the military can work with civilians and with non-governmental organizations to advance our mutual security in these areas. Let me, let me just talk briefly about some of the challenges we have so, and, and just, just close on sort of the cross. So in the context of all this, uh, this management, and we can, we can talk a little bit more about the Middle East because that's a, a more complicated picture later if we want, but if you want... Um, We have these remaining differences uh, with a number of our key allies. We don't see eye to eye, as I said, as we look at trying to develop this approach of how do we manage more effectively these global partnerships. Most of our allies and friends don't see terrorism as this overarching millennial kind of struggle that President Bush and others in the administration have articulated. They see it as a persistent, as a difficult, as a vexing problem but not as one which should dominate all aspects of our security planning. They see it more as a, uh, because many of them, of course, particularly in Europe, have dealt with terrorism for a long time, uh, that many of the, of course, even the 9-11 terrorists, as we know, operated from places in Europe. uh, They see it as more of a a lower level police, intelligence, uh, law enforcement kind of thing, and promoting societal transformation, both in the Middle East and and, and in, in, in the immigrant communities in their own countries. Of course, they're not – many of these countries in Europe, of course, are the first to admit they've not very, been doing a very effective job of that as we watch the riots in France and, and other kinds of marginalization of immigrant communities in Europe. But nonetheless, there's that recognition. They know that's part of the problem, and how can we work to do that together more effectively? In addition, as, we, as I mentioned on the global posture review, we, um, we, we are going to – we're going to have to continue to deal with this widening gap between our own capabilities, our ability to truly act as a global military power, to be able to put a, a, a broad array of force around the globe very quickly uh, and, uh, and and then sustain it. But yet our allies have uh, increasingly been uh, disinvesting in, in defense capabilities, and how can we encourage them to continue to invest in some areas, some key areas, niche capabilities, other kinds of capabilities that can continue to complement our own Broader capabilities, and still prove useful to the overall promotion and management of our of our common interests, and that's one of the key things I think um, that we have to that we have to undertake, and, and finding that that sort of sense that we've achieved a a, a general level of, of of effective and and uh, a, and uh, and equitable burden sharing as we manage some of these key security problems. There's also this concern about how we might use uh, our access to a number of these countries uh, and to undertake uh, military operations around the world. Uh, and I think we are going to have to develop some kind of a more effective consultative uh, mechanisms and, and, a, and, a, and an approach that will allow us to give us some of the kind of flexibility the U.S. government seeks in exercising its military power without completely trampling on the sovereignty of some of our host countries. Uh, or. Leaving us in ourselves in a situation where uh, when we want to go uh, take some action uh, that either the reluctance or the uncertainty about uh, about how we might use that military force is leading to all sorts of encumbrances that over time will erode support in this country for those alliances and as if if for example, some European government were seen as standing in the way of our exercising some what was seen as a legitimate interest somewhere in the middle east but but there is that sense that uh, that and particularly, this is most strongly felt in Korea, but in all of the and, and I, but I think all of our uh, East Asian allies and, and many of our growing partners i didn 't talk about even some of the countries in Southeast Asia, even Vietnam, we were having a, developing a, uh, a closer military to military cooperation and a, and a broader societal cooperation they don 't want to see us they don 't want to be drawn into a conflict with china they don 't want to see us act in a way, be it over Taiwan or, or some other problem that they are somehow inadvertently and against their own will and without some consultation drawn into a conflict against China. And, and this is true for uh, obviously true for the Europeans vis-à-vis Iran, uh, perhaps, or, or uh, other, other potential problems on the horizon. So we have to find a better mechanism. We're going to have to continue to find ways to balance this notion and, again, the trade-offs and inherent in that, but, yes, we may have to compromise a bit on our flexibility. But if we want to have the legitimacy and the support of these key friends and allies on the downside of some of these military actions, we need to be uh, developing certain kinds of processes that will allow for a sense that we just haven't acted in a ham-fisted way and then ask them to either go along or to come help us pick up the pieces afterwards. And that's that's a very crude way and an overly simplistic way of putting what I think is some of the key challenges as we think about how we can manage our security and in the military dimension uh, more globally. And the last thing I would come back to, and and there's been a lot of talk about this, is is this issue of of building partnership capacity. And that is something that I know uh, dear to the heart that Professor Kay was telling about some of the work he's been doing on this. But this whole notion that as we also think about alliances and partnerships, we have to think beyond the box in terms of it's not just governments, it's not just military, it's, it's a broader array of bringing together all of the the tools of national power in the non governmental sector in the business and private sector that can be orchestrated and integrated again, I come back to that word about integration but uh, in, in, in the way the military uses it, but I think it is also in, in a civilian sense this notion of how can we better orchestrate the full array, be it as we look at the kinds of capabilities we need I mean even you know things that you don 't even think about, uh, for example, my wife happens to be a contract lawyer with the commerce department, well they were looking. For contract lawyers to go into Iraq and Afghanistan because if we're going to stabilize, we got to, you know, and as you will see, was the report of the inspector general in Iraq comes out, lots of money, of course, being spent there. How are we spending it? You need, you need, uh, you know, so you need lawyers. You need, you need experts on on social systems. You need experts, obviously, on police. How do we better integrate these kinds of tools, which have not before been applied to global problems in a very in a very big way? Yeah, we have. FBI legal advisors in different countries, and we have some police training, and, and we do certainly have lots of schools of social work that train cadres of people around the world. But how do we better integrate all of these efforts uh, as as we work with some of these states, which, again, I say this this core group of, of 60 or so countries that sees themselves as benefiting from this open global system, but yet recognizes that there are many threats to those uh, those interests uh, from instability, from state failure, uh, from extremism, and how do we better uh, integrate and orchestrate all those instruments of power. So we have to begin to develop these cross-links, and it's defense ministers and interior ministries getting together. It's, it's the social, civil sector, different parts of of, of, our, of other governments getting together and working in a more integrated way. And it's beginning to happen. We're building capabilities. We have, even at our military commands today, we have something called the Joint Interagency Advisory Groups, the GSICs, that sit out there. There are people from... Justice and the State Department from the intelligence community, from FBI that are sitting out in the combatant commands helping them. Uh, they have a religious advisor in uh, several of them, in fact, in a number of these commands, particularly in Central Command, people who are experts on the Muslim world. And so we need to better orchestrate and integrate all these instruments. So let me stop there. I think I've given you a sense of, of where some of this thinking is going, and, and I welcome the chance to have, hear your questions to get some feedback about how you. Uh, react to some of these ideas. So thank you for your attention. I'm sorry I spoke so long. I, I uh, hadn't really timed this out, but uh, thank you.
1: Okay, Shirley.
0: We, we could do like the Marines. We could ask the youngest person present to ask the first oh, question. The oldest and the youngest. Uh, the oldest and the youngest present will ask the first questions. Yes, sir. Kim. No, it's an interesting question. And many people have said, you know, uh, with the growth of, of both uh, Hispanics and, and Asian Americans, will, will our inevitably, our, you know, our turn will be less Europe-oriented, more turning towards, uh, and many people think the 21st century is going to be the Asian century. Uh, I think some of that is happening anyway. I mean, when you look at the extent of our economic engagement and how, I mean, first of all, the importance of China, what China contributes to the growth of the American economy, uh, is enormous, uh, and and you see it every day. I mean, I'm sure if every every one of us picked up some article that we're either wearing or or uh, have within reach, you'd find the word China printed underneath it. Um, uh, I mean, there's all sorts of statistics you can you can cite. So, I mean, East Asia is enormously important to the growth of our economy, and, and the fact that we are able to afford so many goods that are that are being produced at relatively modest rates. So we have to we're gonna have we're gonna be engaged in East Asia. We're, I think there is gonna be this tilt. Uh, Obviously, we're, we're very much focused on the Middle East right now because of the turmoil there, and and, and, our, and energy will remain important from that region. It's not going to. We're not going to. But, but we're going to have to be more uh, effectively oriented towards Asia and thinking about Asia. And I think, in many ways, I, I see our Asian American community, and indeed all of our, our hyphenated communities, if you will, or people that have uh, knowledge and understanding of of some of these other cultures, are a tremendous asset that we have. I heard. Uh, a military community of the other day was talking about, you know, the incredible capacity that we have to be able to call on uh, people that, uh, you know, in our own civilization—I uh, mean, in our own country—that that understand these other civilizations, that speak the languages—that that is an important strength of our ability to deal in a global environment. So instead of, uh, you know, thinking of it always as a threat, now there's no doubt about it. If you're living in Southern California, if you're living in parts of Texas, you're feeling threatened about the potential loss of jobs, uh, but yet. Uh, on the other hand, there are a lot of jobs that, that are going unfilled in, in, uh, in, on, on, you know, in areas in, in farm work and elsewhere that, that I think a lot of Americans don't find very attractive. And so the whole question of how can we find a, an, a balance? And, and we also have to look at it, and another, there's another whole side of this, which is the remittances that a lot of these uh, uh, part-time workers from Mexico and other parts of Central America, the remittances that they send back are, are hugely important to the economy and the stability of those countries. And some people have argued that if, if those started to dry up, if there wasn't that sort of a return of resources from some of these uh, 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 workers that are and immigrant workers that are here in the United States, we could see more and more turmoil, like we've already seen in Colombia and Venezuela, as you know the socioeconomic disparities in those countries begin to become even more pronounced. I'm not saying you know this is the best way to solve the problem. I'm just saying it is it is a factor, and and some of the, so much of this debate over immigration has not. Taken the full range of consideration into account, you know who who, would, who else will do these jobs? will we still be able to fill them if we if we say you know we really really cut down in a major way? what are the ripple effects outside every, every one of these actions today has a global impact and, and what is, what are the impact going to be on other aspects of our our, uh, our interest in, in the stability and the prosperity of the western hemisphere so uh, you know I'm, I'm not directly answering your your question, but I think I'm giving you a sense of some of the factors I think we have to weigh and i I think, yes, we need some balance. We can't have open borders, but but we have to think about how much we want to restrict them and what we lose and what some of the, the longer-term risks are. Yes, ma'am. Within, the Europeans, you mean? Or yeah. Well, I think we've, I, I think the administration has made a, a great a decision in trying to work more effectively with the Europeans uh, in trying to tease out as much as we can. And in some ways, this is the lesson of, you might say, the lesson of our impatience on Iraq, which is, which we hope will pay off. I think at least sort the, of the administration is hoping will pay off in the longer term if we do have to do, take some hard action against Iran over time. And as the President and Secretary Rice always say, you know, no option is off the table yet. Uh, but I do not think, I, you know, just in parenthetically, I do not think, I think as the President said, the notion that there's any kind of military planning underway in detail to go after Iran right now I think is far from the just from everything I, I know and, and what I see. And so I don't think that... But there is a sense that um, Iran there are differing assessments. Some feel that Iran wants to acquire a nuclear weapon primarily as an, as an instrument of national survival. They live in a, an, an area that uh, there's some turmoil. Uh, they can't count on what happens if Iraq really does go sour. They, they fought a very long war against Iraq uh, in the past. Iraq could come, I mean, whether or not they, you know, how Iraq turns out is still an open question for them. They're concerned about, about Pakistan. They're concerned about Russia. Uh, they, they see you know, some uh, potential other threats. But the big concern is us and the notion that we might try to intimidate them uh, or coerce them into some kind of uh, situation, in a situation, a showdown where they, uh, because of our overwhelming power, and the notion that this could be a weapon of, of, of national survival, of a deterrent against us taking precipitous action against them or in some kind of coalition. Now, some people view that, and certainly the Israeli view is that this is an existential threat against us. We cannot. We've seen Iranian support for terrorism. We know, uh, we know that they have, uh, you know, have been active in, in supporting Hamas and other other uh, terrorist organizations. Uh, we can't count on the notion that they would be restrained once they had knows that this would only be used as a last resort kind of weapon. That it might lead to more Iranian activism and and assertion of its influence in the Persian Gulf. And many of the many of our Friends and partners in the Persian Gulf, including Abu Dhabi and Dubai, uh, by the way, uh, of which Dubai is a part of Abu Dhabi, uh, the UAE. Uh, they're very worried and they're concerned about that. Uh, but we're some of our analysts, and I have we have a study that I'll, I'll, I left with Professor Herman, and it's it's on our. It's, uh, we looked at this. Uh, one of our Iran experts and one of our experts on on the nuclear questions uh, worked together with a group of scholars from around the country and around the world. The general sense was that. Um, not saying that we should learn to live with an Iranian nuclear weapon, but if we do uh, there 's a sense that uh, if, if we decide that all the other options of trying to prevent it and, and, and you 've all seen i 'm sure the debate 's playing out in the newspapers can we really could we really prevent it at some point I mean given the dispersal and what might we generate if we do try to prevent it and those would we see our, a, an effort to develop uh, like the Iraqis did to put the program completely underground and I mean both physically and uh, and figuratively, in that sense, that you know that they come back then 20 years from now, and truly are, and not to mention you know what they might unleash in terrorism and other things in the near term. But the notion of uh, if Iran, if we decide that all the other options are, are too risky, and Iran does acquire a nuclear weapon, or at least uh, we think that it, it moves toward in that direction, where it maybe isn't a declared nuclear power, but somewhat like you know somewhat uh, like India was for a while, where it, it hadn't really fully un- un- yield or, or even Israel for that matter, as, a, as, a non, as a nuclear power, non-declared, uh, that we might find that deterrence, and this has been a, a controversial argument, but, but a number of scholars have made the case. Stephen Van Ever from MIT had a piece in the New York Times recently arguing this. But there's a, I think there's a lot of truth to it, and some of our experts also reached the same conclusion that if we reaffirm our commitment to Israel, if we reaffirm our commitment to some of the Gulf states. That we won 't allow Iran to intimidate them or to try to use its nuclear weapons to to force uh, any of those states or to assert its power in, in a way that's that 's inimical to those interests uh, that that might it might be that that the deterrent uh, the longer term deterrent is is much more uh, much more effective in achieving our interests and maintaining our interests in the region uh, and as long as we show that we 're not about to allow Iran to then use this newfound capability to to become some kind of a dominant force uh, in the region that would that would act. Now again, it's not it's not a it's it's a it's a balancing strategy. And what but but I think that whatever happens, and if it is finally decided that no, it's it's in our interest, uh, that we that the We as the U. S. government decide that we really do we can't. It's intolerable because of the potential risk of, of you know, would Iran uh, transfer weapons to terrorist groups? Our experts who reviewed this issue from across the political spectrum felt, probably not. The Iranians, they, they want to protect themselves, but they're not crazy, uh, and they know the potential risk of transferring a weapon to a group that they don't control. They have very, very tight controls uh, through the Revolutionary Guard and other aspects of their own nuclear program, and Professor Herman may have some views on this, but we'll <laughs> I, I think it's unlikely that Iran would, would transfer, uh, have, based on everything I've heard, uh, that they would transfer a weapon uh, to, a, to a group that they don't fully control. Uh, but but I do think that... Uh, so in the end of the day, though, if we do have to go after Iran, if there is a decision that, well, it's, it's really uh, that we are concerned that we have to at least try to set the program back, and, and there may be military options to do that, although even there some people uh, think they're, they're actually quite limited and, and quite difficult, uh, hence some of the speculation in the paper the last few days about using bunker-buster nuclear weapons. You know you can imagine how that would go down in the Middle East. Um, so anyway, you know, the first use of nuclear weapons without without a, a direct attack. So anyway, I, I think that we we, uh, we we need to really weigh very carefully all of the options before we go. But uh, but if we do have, I'm sorry, I, and I keep diverting from my main point. If we do have to act, the fact that we have worked with the Europeans down the line on this, uh, and whether we want to go on the offensive route or even if we want to try to build support for, okay, Iran's going to get the bomb. We need to start thinking about missile defense for Europe. To defend population centers, and I think we might find that, that Europeans will be more willing to go that route, to work with us, uh, to help, and, and to help build a global network that would that would show that yeah, Iran might acquire the bomb, but is it really? Can it be neutralized? Can the effects of it be neutralized better through de- deterrence and defense than through trying to preemptively uh, eliminate it? So, I'm sorry, there's a question over here. Yes. Well,
2: what, what We have A lot of right. I don't think we have plans to pull up Right. Israel's interests are America's interests, unquote. Isn't it an amazing thing for a superpower leader to say that some other country's interests are America's interests? I think it's interesting because in in all your discussions, all the other allies around the world, Japan, Europe, so forth, and so on, it never came up that we should take into account their interests. And in fact, we should allow their interests to trump our interests, or their interests should help inform
0: what our interests are.
2: Mm -hmm. But when discussing Israel, you automatically said that, well,
0: No, I wasn't. I didn't mean to imply that. I was just saying that. I was saying, in fact, that we differ on the, our assessment of the threat with the Israelis. I think. Uh, I think they do see it as an existential threat, whereas I think many in the U.S. would argue that it's it's not. It's not directly clear what I was what I was pointing out about the idea that it may be deterrable, Whereas the Israelis are feeling they're too close to it in the sense that, uh, at least you know, and we had a, a number of Israelis participating in this discussion that we had uh, at our institute last year. Uh, was that uh, they can't afford to, to be, the, the basic argument was, and, and this included someone on the left and the right, uh, that they can't afford to take the risk that, well, if they, yeah, they might be deterrable because it, it's just too close and too proximate. So, so, so I wasn't suggesting that we have, to, I think we have to take into account, and I'm, I'm very worried that if the Israelis did go off and act unilaterally, which I think is, is far from uh, you know, uh, out of the question, uh, I think it would be enormously destructive if they did without some kind of consultation with us. But, I mean, to the U.S.-Israeli relationship, not to mention, you know, the kind of firestone it would set off, because it would be inevitably almost drawing us into a, a, a conflict uh, in, in, in somewhat along the lines you, you're suggesting, but that, that driving our interest. But, I mean, Israeli, and, of course, I'm sure some of you have discussed already the, the, the uh, Mersheimer-Walt piece, saw this whole question of Israel, uh, you know, how uh, it, it does whether or not it's the Israeli lobby, but I mean the, the legitimate question they ask about how do our interests match up with Israel and how do we balance that, how do we weigh out uh, the, the, the risks that we accrue by our close association with Israel versus uh, uh, versus the uh, actual commonality of our interests and where, where, where do they diverge. And I think we do have a divergence of interest sometimes and certainly uh, even this administration has taken the Israelis to task at certain points on settlements issues, on some aspects of dealing with the Palestinian Authority. And, and I think that is one of the key challenges. I, I was going to mention it. I was just trying to leave enough room for a question. But th- that is a key issue there, of balancing our interests of our support for Israel and being, and trying to find a, um, a way where we're not seen as having this unswerving and unfailing support for Israel as much of the Arab world sees it. And and yet balancing that with uh, some of the common, you know, and, and, and showing that we are continuing to have good relations with some of the Gulf states. Uh, and even as we try to promote uh, a political uh, modernization and change in some of those states, because we do think that longer term it's going to be in the interest of stability and and their integration into the global economy by seeing that kind of uh, of, of political uh, change of liberalization and of showing that, that you can be a good Muslim and be integrated into the global economy, and that, and, that, and that we think that without trying to say that we're trying to promote a specific approach or that we want this to look like a Jeffersonian democracy, but just the notion that there are some aspects of governance and political adaptability that are critical to being an effective uh, uh, player in the international global economy today. Um, so anyway, but to come back to, uh, you know, so I, I don't know if I've, I've gotten to What's all the of your... Pakistan? Of your oh, the Paci- right, I wanted to come back to the Pakistan part of this. On Pakistan, I mean, in some ways, the big short answer is it's called war on terrorism. We need, we need Pakistan's support. Uh, one of the reasons we've been willing to somewhat look the other way... Well, they have a little bit. Yeah, they, we have had a, a quiet, from what I understand. You know, uh, I don't know all the details of it, but we have had some quiet because it is a mutual interest. Of they're worried about both terrorism and drugs, actually, out of Afghanistan, and of course the huge problem that Afghanistan has in dealing with pop- poppy culture and and uh, and the way that has fueled some of the the warlordism and other things uh, and regional power brokers. Um, so the, the, the short answer is uh, we need Pakistan as a partner in, uh, and, and obviously we've now as we move towards this new relationship with India where we've more or less blessed the Indian nuclear program, the notion of some kind of I mean we've more or less, the strategy has now been to move towards some kind of balancing and stabilizing the Indo-Pak uh, 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 dynamic and, and their nuclear balance and trying to and trying to uh, you know uh, promote some kind of even-handedness as we continue to develop our ties with Pakistan and, and trying to uh, Help uh, you know develop that cooperation that's focused mostly on terrorism, mostly on the lack, uh, failure of governance in some of their western frontier provinces and elsewhere, uh, and and of course also dealing with Afghanistan and and other aspects of of uh, violent extremism. Uh, so so that's I think you know that's really the short answer. Why are we tolerant? You know, and in some ways again you know the whole question of rollback. I think we began to see that rollback. Uh, either of the Pakistani or the Indian nuclear program became very, very problematic, and and, and probably not not a path that anybody wanted to go down. Yes, President. Yes, uh, coming back. To-
3: sustainable, really this partnership is uh, institutionalized completely. When you ask the Afghan elite in Afghanistan, many of them have said that the United States from election to election, they do not think that it would be sustainable uh, and institutionalized in the The fear is that uh, with the elect, next election, if the Republicans will lose, probably they will be abandoned again, just like Pakistan will. So that's the mindset there. And mm-hmm. I'm just asking the post-sustainable. What happens? What will happen tomorrow is as they up in the yeah. next right. time. So, what are the plans
0: on the ground that impose on it in Afghanistan? Well, I, I guess I don't know that there's. I've certainly never heard a discussion of it, and I think you know, God forbid that should happen. That Karzai is, uh, and, but I mean, obviously there's a recognition there, and the same in Pakistan with Musharraf. I mean, the recognition that they're they're. Potentially very vulnerable, that they could be eliminated by various uh, various groups opposed to uh, to what they're trying to accomplish. Um, I think that uh, what you see is is a there is a sense, and, and that's why I alluded to it, that there is a sense that we've made an enormous commitment, and it, and it is one of, of of truly not repeating the lessons of the 1980s, where we left after their support uh, uh, in dealing with the Soviet in, invasion uh, to leave. Afghanistan back on its own, and a recognition that as a as a key, you know, the the leading uh, sort of poster country for state failure, and then not lose, and, and, and then even turning over uh, parts of its territory to to terrorist groups that could Al Qaeda and others that could operate from from within. I think there's this recognition that that we have to do better. That that there is an effort underway to try to strengthen uh, governance and civil society. All the uh, focus on on building capacity of key ministries uh, there's these uh, so-called provincial reconstruction teams that we're working with, with the U.S. Uh, and, and, a, and a number of other allied, uh, allied and partner countries, not necessarily NATO, but uh, trying to s- integrated civil military teams that are going out into the regions and trying to uh, promote uh, local enhancements of local governance and, and, and strengthen the hands of, of, uh, uh, of also the central authorities to support them. Uh, so I think there's a there's a multifaceted effort underway to recognize that we can't it, you know that as much progress as we've made under Karzai and, and, and his government that you know the shifting nature of the political alliances within within Afghanistan and the way that could change how do we sustain that uh, and I think there is there are efforts underway to try to uh, again to enhance overall governmental capacity that could it could be responsive to a variety of political regimes but to still help Afghanistan exercise sovereignty over its country to provide better education, to provide a new, you know, given the enormous talents of the Afghan people and their capacity in the past to show what they can achieve if, if uh, you know, and if given some other basis of livelihood as well, and that's another key sector that that's, there's a lot of av- investment going uh, into. I, I had a very interesting email the other day from one of my um, son's friends who's uh, serving in, in south of Afghanistan and, uh, with the 10th Mountain Division, and he was saying that He's right up against somewhere. He, I don't know exactly where he is, but he's somewhere down along the Pakistan border. And he was saying how uh, this whole question of the drug culture and, and the move away from it, and, and it's something that they are watching closely. But he mentioned that there's, in this town that they're in, there's an almond grove, and uh, it's really coming into fruition, and they've got some really good plans. They're working, the military's working with some of the AID folks to help them get those almonds to market. And to, uh, and to really uh, uh, ensure that you know there is this other livelihood that there can be this other sustainable economy, and this as I understand it, you know fruits and nuts and some of the other things that as tough as the terrain is, but there is some promise of an, a, an alternative to poppy culture, which of course is so uh, alluring because of the enormous uh, uh, money uh, kinds of things uh, you know the potential of, of sales that uh, that's out there but so I think we have a, a multifaceted approach that's, that's trying to build state capacity overall and it could be responsive, as I say, to a number of different governments. I'm sorry, there was a question over here. I, sorry, did you? I'm sorry, oh, yes. I, I was just going to follow up on the point that Ted raised. I just read Seymour Hersh's and Vincent and the uh-huh.
1: yeah. in the article in the New Yorker. I don't know
0: if you have or not. I, I've seen the reports. So I hadn't seen the full article myself. So I,
1: we just start. quotes heard. history of inside contacts, um, it's hard to believe he's invented this out of the Somebody I, must be making this argument. There,
0: I, I would say there certainly is. I, I would say, yeah, I would say there are definitely people making that case. I mean, as as in any administration, um, there, are, you know, there are hardliners. There are people who say, stay the course with the diplomatic track. Uh, right now, the president's still on the diplomatic track, but, of course, right. he says well, all, no options are on the table. He's
1: attributing this to Vice President
0: Cheney. Yeah. Cheney. Well, and. <laughs> given, given what we know about Jihadi's right. role right.
1: in the run up to a war right. in Iraq from all the memoirs and all the secondary sources, right. if I were sitting in Iran, I would be closely reading that, right. uh, and, and my antennae would be very sharply tuned to what is right. being reported in the press.
0: Didn't
2: right. Bush say we were on the whole diplomatic track until December 2002 as well before Iraq? Right,
0: right. No, I, Maybe even now. Well, I, I, I'm not saying I believe it, I'm just saying that. Uh, there's a couple of things. first of all, it doesn't hurt our diplomacy to have those kinds of stories coming out there and, and I 'm not saying that they were you know purely spun to to create the sense that there was momentum building up, but again, that notion that if there isn't a sense that there's something backing up the diplomacy, will Iran move off uh, you know move off its current position where it's basically telling us it, and we have had some low level contacts with the iranians uh, ambassador uh, uh, Ambassador Khalzad in, in Baghdad has had contacts with the Iranians. Uh, There have been some other dialogues with the Iranians. Uh, Some of what we hear, some of my colleagues have been involved in so-called track two dialogues with some Iranians who are close to various parts of the Iranian government. And the notion is leave off the nuclear question. That's a given. We we have the right to have a full fuel cycle to acquire uh, the full scope of, of, I mean, the full range of nuclear capabilities, including enrichment. Uh, But there are other things we could talk about. Uh, There are... Uh, you know, the things, concerns about drug culture, uh, drug and drug trade, uh, terrorism, uh, some aspects of regional stability uh, that we could talk about. Uh, and I, w- I, frankly, I wouldn't rule out, I don't rule out the idea that we could have, uh, how we finesse this. Uh, but, I mean, there's still an enormous, believe it or not, and some of you may have seen this piece in last year even in National Geographic, which I found fascinating, about how popular... American culture still is in Iran among Iranian young people as they search for greater openness and flexibility. And to include uh, th- something I thought was amazing to me to see, and, and I, I have not been to Iran, but some of my colleagues have, uh, I mean, young women with uh, American flags quilted to their bed pillows. I mean, can you imagine? Uh, this is the evil, one of the e- axis of evil that we, you know, that we still are worried about. So I think that the notion that there could be a dramatic transition in our relationship with Iran if we play this right. Uh, you know, is still out there. I, I don't, I don't, certainly not under Ahmadinejad, but uh, but when the power struggle sorts itself out as Iran finds its new way, and so I hope that we don't get to the point where we act militarily first so we preclude any kind of, that kind of a transformation in Iran and, and, and to the scope for liberalization that was so high in the last several years, uh, you know, uh, that was severely disappointed, of course, with Ahmadinejad's uh, coming to power. But nonetheless, I, I think that, uh, I think if we look look at it, there's, the, uh, the reasons for not acting right away. its Iran, all of the estimates are that they, they couldn't have weapons in, in any time before 10 years from now. So there, some people say, well, there's a critical point. Once they get the centrifuges and, and, and they're operating in large numbers, then it really is almost impossible to try to shut the program down. I, I wonder about that or whether it really is true. And I just think that the, my own view is that the risks of this right now are so great and of, of so... Uh, polarizing our relationships throughout the Muslim world and, through, and certainly uh, 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 throughout uh, the Middle East, uh, that I think, I think playing out this diplomatic track a little bit longer and seeing what we can get uh, still remains the best course. And I'm not convinced that, uh, that having looked at some of the specific uh, discussion, again, in an unclassified venue, but uh, of some of the specific, it's a very challenging military problem. And the notion is, are we prepared then to also go in afterwards on the ground and and, uh, and, and clean up uh, the whole, the rest of the, I mean, that's the, the part of it. You know, people think about, oh, if you just blow up a few facilities, uh, you know, effectively, will we more or less shut the program down? Well, as we know, in, in Iraq, that isn't at all what happens. And there's the ability to, you know, there's the ability, of course, to reconstitute. And the whole question of, have we just delayed the problem and maybe magnified it for a future time for our, for our kids? So I, you know, I, I think, um, i think i 'm sure the administration is is looking at, at a lot of different options i don 't uh, I, I think a number of things I saw in Hirsch's story uh, uh made me scratch my head and question i mean he, his his sources are not impeccable uh, they 've sometimes been quite reliable but not always impeccable so um anyway uh that's probably enough on that There, there was a question yes, ma'am.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: okay well you know I'm a department of Defense employee right now <laughs> <laughs> so I'm speaking on a, on a personal basis um, this you know it's no secret that early on the you know, Many people expected when this administration came in that it was going to be a uh, – that the Pentagon would be one of the most welcoming quarters, not only the, not just the military, but the civilians over there in the sense that here's an administration that's really committed to giving us what we need and to move forward. And of course, you know, we saw even in the early days, in 2001, remember, people were suggesting that Rumsfeld might be on his way out right before 9-11. Uh, he had, uh, in Washington, uh, as some people, you know, the triangulation between Capitol Hill uh, the Congress and the, and, the, and the military, he had, he had alienated all, all three points of the triangle uh, because it was a sense that they were ignoring or not listening to military advice, that they were asking hard questions. And, and there was a legitimate, I mean, it was a legitimate critique of the Clinton administration. Some people said, well, the Clinton administration was too deferential to military judgment, that the, the the balance had shifted back, that there was a sense that they weren't asking some of the hard questions. And Rumsfeld, to his credit, and I think he really shook has he has shaken the system up and he 's asked a lot of hard questions and i and in the long term, I think that I think that has been a good thing. I think it has been important, and the whole notion of transformation of rethinking uh, i mean there are many things that I you know personally would would say that I, I disagree with that, that he's he 's undertaken, but I think you have to give him a lot of credit for uh, demanding a, a kind of a new uh, a, an accounting and, and, a, and, a, and a questioning of why are we doing, yeah, you know, it, it, it can't be the answer, well, that's how we've always done it, sir. Uh, you know, that kind of thing is not acceptable in Rumsfeld's Pentagon and the notion that, and, you know, sometimes the friction has been there in, in a more, in more pronounced way. Sometimes maybe it's, uh, and, and certainly there have been the questions laid out about, uh, particularly with regard to the Iraq war planning, uh, and, and the specific critique that has been articulated in the last few days by General Zinni and others of, uh, were certain military judgments ignored? Well, of course, there's the famous uh, case, which has more or less been documented, although I don't think he's ever spoken about it publicly. Uh, General Shinseki, the Army Chief of Staff at the time, saying, no, we needed a much larger force to do the post-conflict stabilization. Well, I think that you know, Michael Gordon and, and uh, uh, General Bernie Traynor in their book, Cobra II, have fairly well documented that, yes, that, that judgment was somewhat overruled, and we did we did ignore, I think, now to our peril, that we didn't have the stay behind force. We certainly showed the brilliance and the execution of many of the new concepts that have been developed over the last ten years of very rapid movement, uh, rep- movement of rapid decisive action, as it's called in the military. But yet, as we in the rush to Baghdad, we suddenly found out behind the Saddam Fedayeen and all this other insurgency that was waiting to to really complicate the post-war phase so that we never have really completely gotten out of into the so-called phase four part of the plan. Uh, uh, so, again, the uh, the question of, I mean, I don't want to get into speculating did Rumsfeld ignore. There were decisions made. Uh, there were certainly calls. There were others who made the judgment that, no, we could do this with a much lighter force, that, that we could have the kind of effect and that we could come in behind very quickly with a with a, uh, with a small team of, of, of folks that would that help do the, a civil-military team that would do the stabilization. Uh, but in any event, I would say today that, that civil-military relations, I think now that uh, I, I think certainly there's uh, generally a, a, a much better tone in the overall nature of civil-military relations in the Pentagon. I don't think there's the sense that either military judgment, as the first QDR was taking place, the 2001 quarterly Defense Review, there was somewhat of a sense that uh, the military judgment was being shunted aside a bit. That there wasn't a, a uh, that there was a desire to first do it, you know, have some outside civilians do some studies first, and then we'll consult the military, because we got to break the we got to break the mold. We've got to think outside the box, and, and that's not, uh, you know, that's not inimical, or that's not usually what one would expect from from more traditional uh, uh, military planners. So how can we sort of shake the system up? I think now that's sort of leveled out a bit more, and I think there's—I uh, I don't know—you know—I don't want to get into speculating. How you, uh, nobody sort of polls the military on—you know—do you support your Secretary of Defense? But I—I um, I think if you look at the kind of reception he gets around, and, and and then just generally the sense that the relationship has leveled out a bit more. There's a recognition that we're we're in a hard place right now in Iraq, but we're still in some hard places elsewhere around the world. How do we how do we get a a better balance and a, and a respect for uh, professional military judgment and and understanding of arraying the full range of options. And I think the main critique is, I, and I haven't seen the full text of what uh, and General Zinni, whom I have enormous respect for, and, and uh, what they said. But I think that whole notion of the key thing that that any and any leader, and having worked at the National Security Council, one of the things that I used to admire about both watching um, uh, uh, Sandy Berger and, and Bob Gates, who I, I worked closely with at different times and different administrations, was they saw that their key thing was to put before the president and all the other senior leaders the full array of, of judgments and, and the risks and the downsides of any action. And so that there was a, rec- a full recognition of what the, what the cost might be. And, and that might be the one question that I would say, you know, was that really done with regard to Iraq? Or was there, in the, such this rush of the idea that we can get this done fast and we can get it done quickly with a lot lighter force, we won't have all the casualties, uh, was that, uh, you know, was that judgment shunted aside in, in the in the rush to get this done? And, you know, I think... Again, the histories are now coming up, both the official and the uh, of which the gordon and and by the way the Gordon trainerbourg draws a lot on the official military uh, after action history i mean they're, believe it or not, when we deploy these operations, we have military historians that go in right with them right behind, uh, documenting all the lessons learned and the the army and, and, and marines particularly are very good at that whole lessons learned kind of effort um, so anyway and i I think I gave you some sense of yes, sir okay, yes sir. Okay, all right, is that a student back there in (laughs) there? Among, among all of the allies, or, or any particular uh, I mean, allies in and, and the power balancing, or uh, um, I just I was just trying to understand how much power. power, power. States, States has, has vis a vis those allies. Oh, okay. Well, obviously, uh, you know, going back to the comments about the unilateral moment or the the. the the notion that this was a unique moment in history, that the United States having such unparalleled, not only military, but economic power as well, and how do we, how do we exercise it? And does it? Does it immediately change the nature of, does it reinforce the sense of dependency? And I think uh, in some alliance relationships that is, that is somewhat a rub, uh, you know, particularly I think with the us alliance where there has been this history of, of a feeling of great dependency for 50 years. Korea feeling it's come of age, it's an incredibly dynamic economy now. Its growth has, has been enormous, uh, uh, you know, and tremendous in the last two decades. And the I said, "Can we move towards a somewhat greater independence and get out of this dependency relationship?" And so you see the push now towards the notion of, "Can't we have the combined?" Uh, uh, one of the key issues in the U.S.-R.O.K. Okay relationship is the, uh, you know, getting, uh, allowing the Republic of Korea to take operational control of the forces in wartime. And the notion that this, and, and to make the command truly much more of a of a binational, and a, and a co, uh, even though it's always been binational, the combined forces command Korea. But the notion that that Korea would have greater control over its forces in wartime, which is the key point about maintaining sovereignty. So I think you see uh, an, effort, an effort to what I think, and then in Europe it's the same thing. There's a notion of they vote, you know, and this has been going on for a longer time there. But the overcome the dependency, the sense that during the Soviet period. Uh, they did rely on the U.S. uh, and and were willing to fall in line more often with the U.S. because there was a recognition that we were the only ones who could fully deter the Soviets and effectively deter the Soviets that had the range of, of nuclear and other capabilities. And now, again, there's this movement towards the notion of, okay, yes, the United States does have still unmatched conventional military power. It has this enormous, but Europe, 360 somewhat million people, uh, an enormous economy of itself as it begins to integrate. Europe is now a more effective player in the world scene, and we, we I, I think, would welcome uh, a rebalancing, and that's a lot of what the discussion has been over the last several years of welcoming a rebalancing. We, it, we see it, I think most, and I think now this is definitely true in this administration as well, there was a little bit of a uncertainty, but the notion that a stronger and more capable Europe as a fuller partner with us in managing global instability is in our interests, and we may have to sacrifice a bit of, of control. I mean, dependency is a nice thing because in some level, you know, you, when you give an order, everybody hops to and, and joins you on that course. But but there is a friction that comes with that and a sense of resentment that builds up over time and that is very pronounced right now in, in Korea. Uh, but. Is beginning to wane a bit in Europe, as we show that yes, we are. We welcome the u- development of the European Union. We want Europe to be outward-looking. We want Europe to be engaged. We'd like it to be a bit more effective. But show us, show us where the capabilities are. That's the key thing that we're saying. Unlike the, uh, you know, in the case of the ROK, which is of course always invested very extensively and effectively in its own defense, many of our European allies have been reaping the peace dividend and, and a lot of the huge uh, social. Uh, welfare systems that they maintain, and early retirement, all these other things in the sense that, well, why should we as Americans be asking our people to work until age 70 when some Europeans are working 35-hour weeks and, uh, and, uh, and uh, uh, retiring at age 55, which is beginning to sound pretty good to me, but uh, anyway, uh, but the… Uh, <laughs> but. Uh, but uh, in any event, but more no, seriously, that this whole question of but then and so, but who's and yet were we the u s are shouldering the much greater burden of maintaining energy supply routes and stability in the Persian Gulf and everything else, why should we have that kind of bargain? So I think what we 're looking for is a, is a better a what 's seen as a fairer division of labor, and it 's one that that uh, that you know, will change the nature of those dynamics and, and move them from a sense of dependency to a fuller partnership and, and if we can get there, I think. I think we will be better off in the longer term and that we will be able to maintain the cooperation of, uh, of a number of our, our key allies and, and, and partners, both in Asia and in Europe, and, and to build back some confidence with partners elsewhere in the world, too, you know, both in the Middle East and in Latin America. So.
2: Yeah, a, some One okay, Just sure. something that Sorry. I was thinking about when he asked this question about the difference in the way we treat <clears throat> Pakistan versus Iran. Mm-hmm. How much of that
0: Well, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I mean, yeah, we we know how to deal with, you know, mil- as you say, military governments. We've we've had a double- I, I don't think that really is so much, though, the the animating factor. I think there's you know there's a much it's the much larger history of the strained relationship with Iran that goes back to our efforts uh, in the coup in the in the early post-war period uh, with Mossadegh, The sense that we have been you know we've been involved in other aspects of our Support our long-time support for the Shah and the whole Nixon Doctrine. The idea that Iran would be our major Partner in the region, in the sense that we had this uh, pro-Iranian, anti-Arab sort of uh, bent for a while, and then, of course, all of the resentment and the and the and the, uh, the bad feelings in the aftermath of the of the uh, hostage taking and the and the breakdown and complete breakdown in our relationship. We haven't talked to the Iranians for it's it's going on now almost uh, you know almost three decades. So. Um, you know how do, how do you communicate? But yet we have this enormous Iranian-American population who, uh, you know, could be helpful in help us find a, a new way to deal with the Iranian government. And we do have some context, and we do have uh, we do have a lot of people that uh, I think over time can be a tremendous resource for us in, in dealing with uh, a variety of Iranian governments. I, I think, you know, as I said, certainly not. I don't know a lot about Iranian politics and how this might shift at some point, but certainly not under Ahmadinejad. But but Pakistan, I think, you know, there is a trade-off. We, we oftentimes have to act, you know, and of course Saudi Arabia is the other leading case of this, of an authoritarian country that we're willing to deal with and look the other way. Why? Because of energy interest, uh, because of, of the sense that we, you know, we need their support uh, in other aspects of our military presence in the Persian Gulf. But yet that whole presence is part of what fueled the furor of 9 that led to 9-11. So how do, we, how do we, again, and that's where then this whole uh, social change agenda comes in, how do we encourage political liberalization and, and, and the development of pluralism in, in the Muslim world without looking like we're trying to impose our system uh, or our approach to dealing with uh, uh, some of their social problems? But there's no doubt about it, if you look at all the statistics, the greater Middle East is is the big loser in the global economy, and how can we help those countries find a way, find a path. And they're all looking for, the Turks have found one way of a rigid secularism uh, and a and a, but a, but a much fuller integration, is that can the Turkish model be emulated? The Iranians are coming from the other extreme where they've had complete Sharia law and the whole dominance of, of a theocracy trying to move, as I said, some of the young people who clearly would like to move towards a more liberal society, but somewhere not the complete shift to the Turkish model. So how do we help those countries find their way without looking like we're trying to impose some of our own values or our own principles on them. And that's, I think, one of the big challenges that we have in the greater Middle East and throughout the Arab and, indeed, the Muslim world. And do you think part of it comes from
1: sort of balancing the West, the Pakistan and India are balancing each other and now be a to and out that government?
0: That's a, that's, a very, used to stand that's a very good point, that, that we, are the, we are, whether we like it or not, we're now in charge of a lot of, of the stabilization of the greater right. Middle East and our... And, and ironically, the, the hope that many people—and some of you will remember—that some people, remember, people argued that containment, the containment of Iran, of Iraq, I'm sorry, of Saddam, was costing us big, big time. The, the whole furor of us being in the religious places in, in Saudi Arabia and elsewhere, of having our military, the infidels occupying all of the sort of Al Qaeda sort of diatribes against us, the notion that if we could, in fact, have had a very quick and easy transition in Iraq go in and get out fairly quickly and not have this big footprint and begin a process of liberalization and, and, and political change in the Middle East, if it could have worked that way, it would, it would have been maybe a beautiful day and then we might have actually and then, and then moved away. Now, of course, we have exactly the situation you're were saying. We're, now, we're in Iraq big time for a long time. Uh, otherwise we un- unleash all sorts of other uncertainties and instabilities. And, and maybe even lose some of our most important partners in the region like Turkey if we just leave Iran, Iraq to its own devices. So.
3: Well, I know how hard it is to get a day away from Washington. And then it's, uh, Professor Flanagan had to fly here late last night. He has to be back in Washington tonight. And I really appreciate you cutting time out from no, it's the a pleasure. Institute no, it's, for National uh, Strategic uh, Studies and coming out here to Ohio State. It's a great no, pleasure. Great. Well, thank you. Very much. Thank you.
0: Thank you. No, it's a great pleasure, and it's it's important that you do get outside the beltway from time to time because uh, it's part of part of our continuing education. So,
3: maybe some students who want to say hello to you. Sure. Okay. Sure. Sure. Okay. Thanks.